As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Our babies are dying. I just dropped the phone and started screaming. Understand this is a very tragic event. Sam, I'm good! There's a lot of barriers that keep people stuck in relationships, and they've all been made worse under COVID. People stuck in the house, not working, can't work, uh, worried about paying the rent, mortgage, getting food, whatnot. If you're seeing the same issue play out, play out, play out, then that tells you that something's not being done right. We've got an epidemic in this city. A presidential impeachment trial, an NBA star's tragic death, and a stunning split in the British royal family, stories that once might have dominated public discourse hardly even register anymore in a year consumed by a deadly pandemic and racial unrest. But if the year 2020 continues on its present course, there's a better than 50-50 chance someone in Milwaukee will be murdered today. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with my colleague, Amanda St. Hilaire. Good morning, Amanda. Hi, Brian. We are recording this episode on Tuesday, July 14th. Today on Open Record, we are looking at a surge in homicides in the city of Milwaukee. And Brian, this has been an especially violent year so far. It absolutely has. In spite of all the shutdowns and lockdowns, or in some cases, perhaps because of them, And just this week, we surpassed a rather dubious milestone. The Milwaukee County Medical Examiner's Office has now logged 100 homicides for the year across the county, 96 of them in the city of Milwaukee. That's nearly equal to the homicide total for all of 2019. And it's just mid-July. And we're going to talk about why that may be the case. But first, Brian, you said these are numbers from the Medical Examiner's Office not the numbers kept by Milwaukee police. So what's the difference here? Well, the Milwaukee County Medical Examiner's Office classifies any death caused by the actions of another human being as homicide, regardless of whether it fits the criminal definition. So shootings, stabbings, beatings, strangulation, and in some cases even child neglect, they're all considered homicide from a medical standpoint, no matter who does the killing or why. That includes cases of self-defense or officer-involved deaths that are deemed to be justifiable. Police don't count those because they do not fit the FBI's definition of murder, which is used to compare violent crime all across the country. For our analysis, we relied on medical examiner data for a couple of reasons. First, the ME's office keeps detailed tables of homicides going back several years, and that makes data readily available for public review. Second, The police department's publication of homicide data for 2020 
is about a month behind, and we wanted to make sure we were using the most up-to-date information for this story. So we've used that medical examiner's data, understanding there may be some slight differences, differences in numbers. It still gives you a good idea where we are and just what a deadly year this has been. And the size of this project that you took on, Brian, is huge, and that's why having up-to-date information is so important. So before you started looking at why we are seeing this spike in homicides, you started with where are these happening? So how did you go about figuring that out, and what did you find? We started with the 2020 homicide spreadsheet from the medical examiner's office, which Thankfully, one of the great things about their tables is they have a column that includes the address of the incident that caused the death. So let's say it's a shooting. They have the address where that shooting is believed to have taken place, even if the person ultimately died somewhere else, like, say, at the hospital. So for the first six months of 2020, I took that address data and cleaned it up a bit, had to put it in formatting where it could easily be mapped in a mapping program. And then we mapped out the locations of those homicides just to see if any patterns stood out. And as you were going through that data, what exactly were you looking for? Honestly, I wasn't really sure at first. We wanted to just see what does this look like when we see, you know, at the time, 90-something homicides on a screen. Where, where are they? And, and so I started sort of probing around the data and uh, you know, looking, zooming in, zooming out, looking for something that looked like maybe there's a pattern, something interesting, what would stand out? I had essentially 90-something red dots scattered across a map of Milwaukee County. And as I clicked around there, I could see clusters of homicides in different areas. And one in particular stood out because it was the only place on that map where there were three red dots that represented three homicides on a single city block. So in the first six months of the year, that's three murders on one city block. And I decided that's where I would start looking into the real story behind what's been an especially violent year. And what happened on that block? So on that block, there have been three homicides. Now, this is 21st Street between Meineke and Wright, and this is on the city's north side. Um, some people may be familiar with this because it's right at the area uh, just north of North Avenue, right around where the old Milwaukee Mall is located. There's currently the Fondy Farmer's Market. Many people travel to that farmer's market. It's one of the best known farmer's markets in the area. It's been around for generations. So if you know where Fondy Farmer's Market is or the old Milwaukee Mall, this is just to the northeast of that. And there were three different homicides. What was interesting is they were three completely unrelated cases. This wasn't a case of, say, a drug-related shooting and then a retaliatory shooting and then another death. These were completely unrelated. One involved an argument, may have been an argument over drugs or money. We know that it occurred just outside a corner store right between the Fondy Farmer's Market and this neighborhood. And that happened uh, in, in May. A couple of months before that, there was an argument uh, or actually a fight taking place that a car stopped, the, the occupants of the car stopped to watch the fight. While they were parked, a man walked up to the driver and uh, brought up a $100 debt that was owed, shot the man in the neck, and then grabbed $2,000 out of his pocket. And as that man lay bleeding in the car, the other uh, occupants of the car scattered. And the gunman chased after one of them, a, a woman named Josephine Taylor, and he shot her dead in the street. She appeared to have nothing to do with this debt or this argument, this disagreement. She was just caught in the crossfire, or at least was caught in, 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 uh, you know, by this gunman. And then a third incident 
that occurred back in February, in fact, it was the first of the three, was a, a domestic incident. A young woman who didn't even live in the neighborhood, but had come to visit her boyfriend's brother and his family. Uh, while they were there, the boyfriend's brother shot her uh, and another woman, and she died. So three unrelated homicides that all occurred in a short span of time in a neighborhood that otherwise has not actually had a lot of homicides because we didn't just focus on 2020. We actually mapped out homicides going back as far as 2013 to see if we saw similar patterns. And while we did see homicides occurring in the same parts of the city year after year after year, this particular block had not had any until 2020 and all of a sudden three in a span of actually five months. So I know there were several takeaways from what you found, not just on that one block, but in mapping out the data from this year, the data from previous years. What was your big takeaway from looking at all of that on the micro level and on the the bigger level? Homicides and violent crime is often cyclical. It will rise, it will fall. But when it rises, you're always looking for what is it that's causing the spike this year? And of course, we have a lot of things about 2020 that are unusual. When you consider we've had, obviously, the pandemic, we've had the the unrest over the, the, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis that's led to protests. Um, there, there have been a lot of things that have been unusual about this year. Uh, but one of the things that I found in talking to people in the community and in talking to those who track these sorts of things is obviously domestic violence is on the rise. Um, reports of domestic violence and in particular homicides related to domestic violence are at levels we haven't seen in many, many years. And just this year, up to the first six months of the year, we've seen as many domestic violence homicides as we saw in all of 2019. And that would make sense when you consider that so many people have been cooped up inside. There are other stressors that are playing on people's lives. So many people are unemployed. They don't have jobs. So money is, is, a, is a stressor. And, you know, in any relationship, money is one of the top things people argue about. Um, so you've got that. You've got, you know, all sorts of financial hardships. You may have boredom, people staying in close quarters. So uh, we, we spoke to Carmen Petrie with Sojourner Family Peace Center, and she says that those kinds of things have all been there before, but they've been exacerbated by the fallout from COVID-19. So that's certainly one factor that people are looking at is you have all of these things that uh, are, are stressors to begin with in a community maybe where, um, you know, financial hardship is just a part of daily life, but you add all of this uh, in, in, in what's happened this year and it's only made things that much worse. But domestic violence doesn't account for all of the increase, right? It doesn't. It, it accounts for part of it. And uh, there are a number of factors. I mean, one of the things that stands out this year is there have been a few isolated, not isolated, but a few single incidents that have resulted in a large number of deaths just in and of themselves. Of course, it, it's easy to forget sometimes because so much has happened this year. But there was a mass shooting at Miller Coors uh, that would have been probably the top story of almost any other year in Milwaukee. And yet it's sort of faded into the background because of everything that's happened since. But you had that mass shooting that took the lives of five brewery employees. And then, of course, the gunman uh, died as well, took his own life. So that's six deaths in, in one instance, five of them that would be considered 
uh, homicides. I, I suppose a medical examiner would consider, well, no, one would be a suicide. But so five homicides there. You, you then have uh, a domestic situation where a man named Christopher Stokes killed five members of his family, shot them all to death, and then called and reported that to police himself. Uh, it turned out Mr. Stokes was later found to be not competent to stand trial, and he's currently committed to a mental institution. And then you have another uh, situation, uh, Arzell Ivory, a man who murdered his uh, girlfriend and two of their children and burned their bodies. And he is facing uh, homicide charges for all three of those. Those three incidents account for 13 homicides. So Milwaukee police have said, look, those are anomalies. Those are not the kind of things we see in a typical year. We saw three of them in the same year. That's going to drive the numbers up. Homicide or, or domestic violence homicides are also up. When you put those together, they contribute. But even at that, it doesn't explain it all because shooting violence is, is, is simply up. Shooting deaths are up this year compared to previous years. So there may be a number of factors at play. And, and some say that that issue of unemployment, stress, financial hardship, boredom, nothing else to do. All of that may be playing into the increase we're seeing, and, and there may not be just one singular cause of this increase. I'd imagine when looking at data like this, Brian, it's really difficult because, of course, as journalists, we're trying to get at the why all the time. We're also trying to not speculate. And when you're looking at data, it's really easy to... Uh, our, our brains sometimes make it easy to find patterns that maybe have nothing to do with the situation at hand. So how do you balance looking for those patterns and, and getting to the why, but also saying, okay, just because something is happening at the same time, that doesn't mean it's the cause of it. Well, I don't know that we can really assume to, to derive cause from any of these. I think every individual homicide has its own set of circumstances. And you're right, it's difficult not to fall into the temptation to try to draw conclusions when you look at a set of data, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be looking at it. And in fact, sometimes there may be things that emerge. In some cases, it is that very idea of where are the murders happening this year and is this a neighborhood that needs some resources or needs some attention? Um, I didn't notice in looking year after year that there were, for instance, areas of the city that had once been hotbeds of, of violent, deadly crime that have you know nothing now or have seen a dramatic drop. I, that was one of the things I was looking for is to see are there areas where maybe resources have been uh, added that had success and now there might be other locations, other parts of the city that need that same kind of attention. That didn't stand out in the data because what you see year after year, while there's some variation and some change, by and large, it's the same parts of the city. Mostly the the north side, the northwest part of the city, there are some hot spots on, on, on the south side, but kind of the same areas. And my guess is if you overlaid these areas with uh, with census data, if you, you overlaid them with areas that struggle with, with poverty, um, they're going to be many of those same locations. There's all the, always a strong correlation between poverty and violent crime. And, and we see that uh, this data year after year seems to suggest that violent crime happens in the same places. What you still wonder, though, is, why all of a sudden in 2020 are we seeing this massive surge in homicides? Some would have speculated perhaps that because so, so much was shut down, so many people were at home, maybe fewer people would be out committing 
these kinds of violent crimes, but then that's balanced with the increase of what was happening at home. So it's not always easy to draw those conclusions, but it certainly doesn't mean you don't look. Well, and this is where looking at the data is really important because when you can see, okay, this is happening in the same area over and over, what are the resources we need to direct there? Are we directing enough resources there? Is anyone at the city level reviewing these in the, in the same way you are or even in a more in-depth manner than you are? Well, we know that Milwaukee police do their own homicide reviews. They do a shooting review every time there's uh, every time there's a deadly shooting. They have internal reviews of these sorts of things. But we don't really see from a public standpoint what's going on with those reviews because they're happening in-house. Years ago, back in the early, uh, uh, the, probably the mid part of the first decade of this millennium, around 2005, uh, there was a new body established called the Milwaukee Homicide Review Commission that had the job of bringing together people from different agencies and different disciplines to really look at, okay, what's going on with these homicides? Typically, when police investigate a homicide, they're looking to solve the crime. They want to hold someone accountable. They want to put someone in jail. So from a police department standpoint, traditionally, detectives aren't looking to figure out why something happened or how to prevent it. They're looking at how do we hold someone accountable, take some, a deadly uh, or take a killer off the street and, and put them in prison. This Homicide Review Commission was created to look at the why, to look at the what happened, to look for the patterns and see are there things we can do to try to prevent homicides in the future. And that commission was sort of based or housed academically um, with researchers, but the the members of the commission are people like Mayor Tom Barrett, the, the district attorney, John Chisholm, the police chief, um, whoever that might be at the time. The big players. Other stakeholders, the big players, other stakeholders in the community, people from the health department. Uh, so, you know, you've got public health experts, domestic violence experts, Carmen Petrie of Sojourner as a part of that commission. So there are all of these various stakeholders that are sitting down ideally to say, OK, what happened in this case? Were there red flags? Were there things we could have intervened in sooner? Are we starting to see patterns and what can we do? And early on, that commission was seen as having great success. After its formation and after they began reviewing homicides, there was a decrease and they touted that decrease. Now, of course, since then, we've seen cycles where there's been an increase in homicides and then a drop again. But nationally, other communities saw what Milwaukee was doing and said, we want to do that too. So the Milwaukee Homicide Review Commission actually got funding to go out and train other communities in how to do what was being done here. But around 2016, 2017, the Homicide Review Commission found it was getting less and less uh, participation from Milwaukee police, and police started doing more of their own in-house reviews. And my understanding is that as that sort of participation by MPD waned, the, the Homicide Review Commission at the same time had lost some of its grant funding. And in 2017, they stopped reviewing homicides. They still exist. The Milwaukee Homicide Review Commission is still a thing, but for the last three years, it hasn't done what its name suggests, which is to review individual homicides. And in 2018 and 19, that may not have seemed like such a big deal because the numbers were down. They, for the whole year, for, for all of 2018 and all of 2019, each of those years, the homicide totals stayed under 100. 
And we've had years where Milwaukee's seen 130, 140, 150 homicides in a year. So for the last couple of years, maybe it seemed like that wasn't such an important missing piece. But now, in a year where we're seeing this huge surge, there are people looking back and saying, well, wait a minute, where's the Homicide Review Commission? And and are they looking at what's going on here? And are, are there any plans to bring that back? Well, and that's that's uh, a question that's still sitting out there. I do under I did speak to Mallory O'Brien, who is the founder, founding director of the Homicide Review Commission. She is now engaged in other projects with the U.S. Department of Justice, so she is not the, the sort of the hands-on person who's engaging in individual homicide reviews. But she did say that they've brought on uh, someone new who uh, will probably run the show going forward, and whose job it is to go out and seek out that grant funding to find the money to get this thing back up and running. And it sounds as though there is certainly interest in getting these individual homicide reviews going again. I interviewed Carmen Petrie for this story about the surge in homicides and and our mapping of these. And she said, without the players at the table collaborating, we're missing important things. One of the things the Homicide Review Commission has done is specifically look at those domestic cases and where the system can intervene and prevent deaths when there were signals all along the way. And so she says, you know, we need to be collaborating. We need to be doing that. There's interest in getting it up and running again. It's not entirely clear to me yet how that's going to take place, when that's going to be happening. In the past, there were at the very least quarterly reviews being done where the the Homicide Review Commission would report, okay, here's what happened in the first quarter of whatever the year might be. And you know, here's sort of our overall view of what we're seeing. Then that be- went from quarterly to maybe semi-annually, and 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 then it just sort of went away. So what form will it take if they get going again? That's not yet clear. That's something that I'll be watching. I think that's an important thing to know is what are the stakeholders doing as we're seeing the surge in homicides to determine how are we going to prevent this from being a second half of 2020 that looked like the first half, and and what can we do going forward beyond that? Over several podcast episodes, we've talked about the idea of defunding the police, which, depending on who you ask, means something different. But a lot of people have advertised it as something that means going upstream to take care of some of the root problems so that police don't have to take care of it downstream and doing that by shifting funding from police to some other efforts to, uh, in theory, get to the root of the problem. Is that something that's a factor here as we look at these homicide rates? I mean, you talk about domestic violence, you talk about the Homicide Review Commission and, and other resources. Does defunding the police play any role in these conversations? I think calls to defund police and, and any review of, of the police budget raises questions about what does that really mean? What what then are the priorities for those resources? And I don't know that we have the answers to that yet, but there's certainly been talk about are police involved in things that other agencies or other organizations could handle, sort of the more almost social work aspects of policing. Do they need to be the ones going out on some of these calls that really could be handled by an organization that's more focused on 
the, the sort of social work aspect of things. Maybe the shift becomes you see police doing less of that and there's more of a focus on this sort of root cause of violent crime. I don't know. I'm sure those are discussions that are going on right now. There's always the concern that if you talk about defunding police, that perhaps it means fewer detectives who are looking into solving crimes, much less determining what caused them in the first place. I mean, if you have uh, a lack of bodies and you've got to cover your calls for service, does that mean you can't afford to have as many people you know, looking into just solving homicides, much less determining what caused them? So I don't know that we know how that's going to play out. I'm sure that's got to be a part of, of the discussion. One thing that is, if there is, I, I suppose you could say good news in looking at these numbers, is Milwaukee police do have a reputation for having a pretty high clearance rate on homicides. Now, that's a tricky phrase, though. That's a tricky term. Right. Because, clear doesn't necessarily mean resolve. Right. When you say someone has clear, a department has cleared a homicide, police will consider a homicide cleared if they've identified who they believe committed the murder, even if that person's not been arrested or charged. In some of the cases this year where charges have been filed, the person who's charged is missing. There's a warrant for their arrest. Now, if, if you're the relative of the person who was killed, I don't think you consider that resolved because the killer's out there and they haven't been brought to justice. From a police department standpoint, that's considered cleared because they've identified the killer, they've taken it to the DA and the DA's charged them. So there's some, uh, you know, disagreement maybe on, on uh, what really constitutes a case being resolved, but in the first 90-something cases I reviewed, there were already, and this is, again, six months into the year, there were already 40-something homicides that have been charged in Milwaukee County this year. So a substantial number of these cases are leading to criminal charges quickly. And, and if that's anything, that's good news. You've got detectives that are that are on the case and they're, they're at least getting to the point of identifying individuals quickly and getting them charged. They're not all charged. And there are a handful that never will be. When you consider, for instance, the, the Miller Coors shooting, no right. one's going to be charged with those crimes because the killer's dead. Um, and there are other cases where there have been domestic uh, uh, shootings where it was, in fact, a self-defense killing. It was the victim who was shooting the perpetrator. That's not going to lead to criminal charges if it's deemed to have been a justifiable killing. And you also have the, the cases, you know, where there are perhaps, say, officer-involved shootings. This isn't city of Milwaukee, but the shooting at, at Mayfair um, earlier this year has not led to criminal charges, at least not to this point. There are certainly calls by some in the community to have the officer charged in that case, but it has not been. That is a case that may or may not lead to criminal charges. So, but we know who was involved. There's no secret. It's not a mystery. They're not trying to solve a murder mystery. It's just a matter of, are the circumstances there that, that lead to charges? So again, one of the takeaways here may well be that while there's been a surge in homicides, police seem to by and large know who's doing it in most of these cases, and many of them are, are leading to charges. But that doesn't mean they're getting to that root cause to prevent further uh, further violence. And that's really where something like the Homicide Review Commission comes in. The question, I think, is how does the current chief, Alfonso Morales, feel about that collaboration? There's been some discussion and some suggestion that the past administration, that of Police Chief Ed Flynn, that he wasn't particularly as wild about that sort of police involvement or, or data sharing or information sharing. Milwaukee police have their own data fusion center, and 
they do their own internal shoot reviews, do they think they need to collaborate with these other agencies? Does Chief Morales feel uh, strongly in support of that? We haven't had a chance to talk to him about that yet. I'm hearing uh, that that he is supportive. And, you know, I guess we'll find out more as we go forward. I don't think this is the end of the story by any means. This is just the beginning, especially if we start to see that return of homicide reviews from outside the department. Well, and in your own review of the data, you mentioned a little earlier, Brian, that homicides are happening in roughly the same spots in every year. I'm interested in hearing what the people in those neighborhoods think about it and whether any review uh, by the city will involve talking to those people about what's happening in their community. Well, you know, so for this story, it's hard to tell a story about 90 something homicides when you've got a few minutes of television. So we focused on that neighborhood, that block where there were three in one year. Let's go see what's going on there. And and uh, photographer Jerry Emig and I went to the neighborhood with no real plan other than to just meet the people who live there. And when we first got there, the, the I, I don't know what day it was. It was a sunny Tuesday morning, I believe it was. And, and there were four or five guys congregated on the front porch outside one of the houses. And I, I came up and introduced myself and told them why we were there. And one of those young men got up and he said, you need to go talk to her. And he led me across the street to uh, a woman who we interview in the story named Crystal West. Now, Crystal West is part of an anti-tobacco organization that's, uh, uh, she's been very vocal in a number of of community uh, organizations and efforts. And she's sort of considered, I would say, like a block leader um, in what is known as the Amani neighborhood. Now, it goes beyond 21st Street. It actually covers quite a number of blocks in that area. Uh, the Amani neighborhood, uh, also known as, um, I believe it's Park West, uh, is, you know, it, it's an area that's dead set in the middle of the 53206 zip code, which anyone who's seen the documentary knows, it, the documentary 53206, knows it's an extremely violent area, a place that's been plagued with deadly violence for for many, many years. But Crystal West is proud of her neighborhood, and she works very hard to try to bring attention to the positive things that happened there. The Fondy Farmers Market, for one, is probably the crown jewel of that neighborhood, and they're working with their alderman, Russell Stamper, to try and get a a park built on one of the vacant lots that's just on the south end of, of that uh, of that block. There are a lot of young men and, or young boys there that like to play basketball, and there are young men who give their time to coach them. And she said there's a lot of positive things going on in that community. So on the one hand, they don't really like it when the news shows up and they just want to talk about the bad stuff. Right. On the other hand, in that very conversation I had with, with Crystal West, she talked about being the one who runs to the gunshots. And, you know, a lot of us, thankfully, don't have to deal with the kind of neighborhood where there would be more than one circumstance where we hear gunshots we have to run to. But Crystal's the one who runs there to try to support whoever is has been shot, to try to be there for them. She, uh, she you know, held or, 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 or prayed over, she said, one of the victims earlier this year just because she knew he was he was dying and he needed someone to be there to comfort him as you know first responders were were on the way um so she knows that it's it's been a, a particularly deadly year and she said her biggest concern is if nothing is done if 
nothing changes that you see those street side memorials and we report on them all the time the balloons the teddy bears you know tied to the tree uh the things that are sort of left behind to commemorate a person who's died she said for the kids in the neighborhood that stuff is still there after the the candlelight vigil is over and it stays there and kids are playing around it they're just playing their regular games the things that that you know any other kids in any other community do on a daily basis but that's the backdrop and and she had a line in the story where she said you know she she leans down she picks up a teddy bear and she says you know i'm afraid that teddy bears are going to mean death something that's supposed to be comforting something that's supposed to bring you know peace to a child and happiness and joy represents for them death because they grow up associating well teddy bears are the thing that we put where people die so the concern for her is that this becomes something that's just accepted this is a community we live in and so we accept that violent crime and death happens all around us and and that for for crystal and for others in the neighborhood is not what they want to be known for there are other great things going on in the amani neighborhood and they want to be known for those things and they want and, and they say they love living there they have pride in their community but when this kind of violent crime goes on around them and it becomes the focus of the media it becomes the what people believe they're known for it's it's certainly troublesome and i think they'd like to see those things change too one thing crystal kept going back to in our conversation was investment was money and that you know if people in that community are are given the chance if they're given jobs if they have something to be proud of if they have something to keep them occupied, that you may see less of this. And of course, those are concepts that make sense. They're easier to talk about than they necessarily are to put in practice. But we're hearing a lot of talk. When you, when you, you mentioned earlier defunding the police, you'll hear many people who talk about defunding the police say reinvesting those resources elsewhere. And, and Crystal talked about that. Whether it's coming out of the police budget or somewhere else, investment in these communities, whether it's in parks, whether it's in other services, she says that, she believes, is is one way to try to dig them out of what's been a particularly violent year. Well, and it's all too easy for those of us in journalism to parachute into a community, report on the salacious things that are happening, and, and then leave. And I think that's why journalism, like what you did for this story, Brian, is so important because we're we're bringing depth we're bringing understanding and and we're bringing humanity to it to understand that there's there's a lot more to these communities than murder and there's a lot more going on than than just dots on the map so one of the things i liked about this story and what stayed with me was it wasn't just here's where everything's happening it's a look at what do we think is going on why is this happening and then how do we go forward from here? So I know this isn't the last story that you'll have on the topic. No, I don't think it should be. I think this is a subject we should uh, we, sh we should focus on routinely. And, and when you see a year like this that's been especially deadly, it calls for a, a hard look at why and what can be done to, to stem it. You know, I thought one of the more interesting things that really stood out, stood with me and stayed with me after doing this story is we interviewed a woman named Ira Alexander. And I didn't get, didn't get to talk about this on the air, but Ira is a very interesting person. As it turns out, Ira um, uh, used to work for the Milwaukee Sentinel. Back before it was the Journal Sentinel, there was the Milwaukee Journal and there was the Milwaukee Sentinel. She was a reporter for the Milwaukee Sentinel. She's covered 
the police beat. So she knows about violent crime in the city as well as anyone. This is a uniquely qualified person to speak Absolutely. to this. And she left for a number of years and actually for 20-something years lived in Texas and was a features editor for the Dallas Morning News. So she is a bright, articulate, intelligent person who understands journalism, who understands crime, but who also spent a number of years, and her home is Milwaukee. She spent her life, other than those 20 years away in Texas, she spent th that life in Milwaukee's inner city. And she is the aunt of one of the victims, uh, Naya Chapman, who was killed in a domestic situation there on 21st Street earlier this year. And when I interviewed her about that, uh, it, it was really interesting to me that she said the person who killed her, that it wasn't just Naya's family who lost someone this year. It was the family of the man who killed her who's losing someone to the criminal justice system. And I thought that was a very uh, uh, compassionate viewpoint and, and an, uh, an interesting one because it's not just the victims who are being lost, but obviously people who commit these crimes, their family members may have had absolutely nothing to do with it, but they lose a loved one too. So there's a double loss here. And I thought it was actually very telling the way she recognized that this is a loss all around. When there are homicides, there are no winners. Um, and and it's something that, that people... Uh, on, on, on all sides have a stake in seeing reduced and brought to an end. And, and I'm sure you could have years of, of, uh, of, of university discussions and, and criminologists could weigh in. And you're not going to solve this problem in a five-minute news story. But it is something that affects the daily lives of people who live in these communities, and they don't want it that way uh, any more than you would want it in your neighborhood. So Anything that can be done to look at those root causes and look at how violent crime can be uh, prevented, how a, a surge like this can be stemmed, I think is, is important and, and uh, something we continue or plan to continue looking at closely. Well, and with that, uh, Brian's going to continue to look at this issue, and we're going to continue bringing you more frequent episodes of Open Record as we cover the COVID-19 pandemic, the unrest over police issues in Milwaukee and across the country. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email at theinvestigators at fox.com. That's theinvestigators at fox.com. As always, we want to thank the people who make this podcast possible, from producer Pete to editor Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and executive producer Sarah Smith. And please subscribe to Open Record if you haven't done that already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Polson, And for Amanda St. Hilaire, we'll be back with our next regularly scheduled episode on Thursday. <laughs>